0: Welcome to In Conversation, the podcast that fuels your entrepreneur spirit, brought to you by Inhomoko. We deliver thought-provoking conversations with industry leaders, game changers, and unsung heroes, all making an impact in their communities and shaping the future of business. Let's grow together and transform the world, one business at a time. And so it's just been such an honor to have you here. I would I would happily introduce you, but I also don't want to tell your story. Um, and I would love for you, if you would, to tell sure. us who you are.
1: My name is Stacy Abrams, and I am an author. I've published 15 books. Uh, I am an entrepreneur. Uh, I was very reluctantly one. I was a tax attorney by training, so I began my work actually when I was at Yale Law School. I was the volunteer lawyer for a number of organizations that could never afford lawyers who'd been trained at Yale. (laughs) My parents are from Mississippi. Uh, The state of Mississippi is the poorest state in the United States. And that's where I grew up. But when I was in law school, actually moved home for a semester, I was studying and writing a paper about religious organizations that were involved in civic engagement. Mm -hmm. So I ended up getting clients uh, because people would come and say, well, you know, Can you help me with this paperwork that I have to file? Or I'm applying for this grant, can you assist me? And the answer was no, I didn't know what I was doing, but I taught myself how to do this work. What it started for me was my first small business. It was a nonprofit organization that would help disadvantaged organizations throughout the south, uh, Southern region of the United States. I went from law school to, I was a tax attorney, but I also did a lot of pro bono work. So I took on clients who could never afford to hire my firm Uh, so many clients that my firm asked me to stop uh, because I was not covering the cost of my salary (laughs) (laughs) and most of my clients couldn't pay their
0: bills.
1: (laughs) And so we had a very nice conversation and we all decided I wasn't going to be a lawyer very much longer, (laughs) but they actually helped me transition. I then became deputy city attorney for the city of Atlanta, so I learned a lot about small businesses, about entrepreneurship, and how to help build the actual capacity of communities And then from there, I left that to run for office. And that's when I became an entrepreneur. I then found a business partner because I was a terrible business person on my own. (laughs) I I was happy to do the work, but I didn't want to ask anyone to hire me. I didn't solve it. I just hired someone to do it for me. So my business partner was very outgoing. And so she would find the business So we we both did the work, but we split our responsibilities. I then started a beverage company uh, for babies and toddlers. And we grew, but we actually, we grew too fast, Mm -hmm. and we couldn't find financing. We had a massive grocery store that wanted to buy thousands of our products, but we had to automate our equipment. And to automate the equipment would have cost Mm $75,000. The invoice that they gave us, how much they were going to pay us, was twice that amount. But we couldn't get anyone to loan two women the $75,000, and so we had to shut down our business. And so from there, we started a new company where we bought invoices from small businesses. Mm-hmm. So we realized we, wanted to, we couldn't solve our own problem, but we raised money and solved the problem for others. And so that was called Now Account. I did that until 2017 when I decided to stop making any money and I ran for office. <laughs> I ran <laughs> for governor of Georgia. I was the first black woman in American history to ever be the nominee uh, for governor. I almost made it, didn't quite get there. But in the process, I was able to leverage uh, other work that I'd done and this is the last part of it. And in response, I created three organizations and now I'm working on uh, environmental issues, writing some more books and doing my best to help NDI spread democracy around the world. And that's my story.
0: So one question that I have, and it sounds like your political life is Georgia. As somebody who seems to have very deep connections to your community, how do you balance that staying at home while also seeing opportunities for greater good even farther away?
1: So I grew up in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. I came of age in Georgia. I am a daughter of the South. And in the United States being Southern, uh, especially being Black and Southern, really is a conversation about how do you help everyone who has incredible capacity, but very few people believe in us. They won't invest. We are the least likely to get education. We're the least likely to get jobs. If we get jobs, we're the most likely to be underfunded. And so Georgia, I think of Georgia as my base of operations, Uh but my service population is the South. And if you solve problems in the South, you find solutions for problems for everyone. Mm. My fundamental belief is that poverty is immoral It is economically inefficient and it is solvable. Mm -hmm. And if that's your ethos, all of the work that I do and all of the ways I do my work, I'm constantly thinking about how does what I do here have broader impact. And so every group I create, every organization I start, my message to myself is it has to be replicable. Mm -hmm. Because if, if only one person can solve a problem, then what you design is a system that's intended to fail because all you have to do is get rid of that one person. I always want everything I do to be replicated. And I know when you're in business, your mission is to be so singular that no one can do what you do. No one can do it better than you do, is how I think about it. And so on the work that I do is to be replicable and then to be exportable, meaning that not only does it work where I am and other people can do it, but that other people in other places can understand it and try it too. Mm I think it's always important to be grounded where you are because it's how you remind yourself of why you start. But it is critical that you think afield and abroad because if what you do is successful, more people benefit. And if more people benefit, then your mission is actually met.
0: Do you think it's too easy to be pulled afield too soon?
1: I, I think it depends on the person. Some of us are hedgehogs. We like one thing and we, this is the thing we do and we concentrate there. And then the other idea is that they're foxes. Foxes like different ideas, and they wander through the ideas, collecting information from each of the things they try. I'm a fox. (laughs) And the world needs both. You need foxes and hedgehogs. And so I do think you can't do everything all at once. And that's when people get pulled afield. It's when you think you can do all five things. It's like Jenga. So you, you stack everything up, but you have to be really careful which piece you pull out to work on. Because if you pull out the wrong piece, the weakest piece, the whole thing falls apart. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you don't try, but you just need to be prepared for failure,
0: mm-hmm.
1: for the whole thing to collapse, but you also have to build it sturdy enough. And so for each thing that you're interested in, for each thing that might be a call on your time and attention, be very careful to build the, the infrastructure and the, the foundation so that it's strong enough for you to try the next thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, I, I love that. So shifting, shifting gears a little bit, one of the things that, that you said, you basically said, I didn't want to run for governor because of the title. Like I wanted to run for governor to do the work. Mm-hmm. And when you lost the race, it meant you didn't have the title, but you still had the work to do. Right. How do you sort of share some of your thoughts with these young, young career, mid-career professionals who sort of have aspirations for big titles and motivated
1: in that way. So in 2018, I was the most Googled politician in the world and I lost. So everybody saw it. My niece, uh, who at the time was five, I have several nieces and nephews, but the five-year-old said, Aunt Stacy, are you a loser? Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. And I said, yes. Mm-hmm. And a few years later I said, I'm the best loser ever.
0: <laughs>
1: you cannot make progress if you don't try. And if you try, you, are like, you might be successful, you might not. I believe poverty is immoral, and I am trying multiple ways to tackle it, through the nonprofit sector, the for-profit sector, through the civic sector. But I also know that there are certain titles that give you access to more resources, more power, more platform. But the title is not the end goal. The title is about what does it give you access to, what resources are available, what platform can you have. And so I didn't get to be governor. And so I created Fair Fight. <laughs> I didn't get to become governor the second time. And I am now running another entity. And for me, the, being a good loser, being the best loser, is that I'm never defined by what I don't get. I'm defined by what I try. And it's hard because we are trained to only respect success. I, I respect progress. If I am the same as I was the day before, I have not done my job. If I am better, if I've learned something, if I have, even if it didn't come to fruition, if I have more knowledge, more comprehension, then I've made progress. And progress, when it's stacked up, progress sometimes exceeds title. But the work matters. And as long as you know you're doing the work, the title is the nice to have it is sometimes great to have it would be great to be governor <laughs> because i could do at scale many of the things i think about but if i can't do it at scale with those resources my responsibility is to figure out which piece can i do without that title until i figure out another way to get there in homoco we are a values
0: a values driven organization and one
1: one <laughs> our our
0: very first value was is we eat goat and what we eat goat means here is that Uh, We celebrate success, Mm -hmm. and we hold each other up in hard times. For you and your entire journey, so just know the proverbial goat. Thank you. Um, One of the very first things that I ever heard about you, um, and it was someone else, who had met you maybe like 15 years ago before. I was like, oh, I just met this woman, Stacey Abrams. She is so strategic and data-driven, Like has a methodical implementation plan and has the strategy to back it up. She is one of the most impressive people that I have seen come through this office. Um, But is that how you sort of approach with your COO mind? Like data-driven, you just make a plan and work a plan?
1: Ambition without a plan is just a dream. Uh, We all have things we love to do, but until there's a plan, there's no way to prove it. There's no way to, to access it. There's no way to correct for it. I became the minority leader. I, I got my job after we lost every single statewide election. We had the fewest number of people in, in Georgia history in my party in power. And I said, I want to be in charge. Hmm. And then I put together a it was basically a 20 page PowerPoint presentation where I laid out it would take us 10 years and we would lose this many elections. But we had to try, so to win four seats, we had to try for 12 Mm -hmm. to win, and that we, of those 12 seats we were going to try for, I thought we could win four, we would come close in three, we would be completely shellacked, but we would make them spend money. And then every year after that, I plotted out where I thought we would make progress. But the other part was I paid for my own plane ticket and I went to a bunch of rich people across America Mm -hmm. and I showed them this plan and they laughed at me. They did not believe it was possible that especially if it was possible, I wouldn't be the person who would make it so. But what I did was then the following year, I came back and I showed them my plan, I showed them how we updated it, and every year thereafter. And each time I would come back, the funders who believed in me, I would come back and be like, yes, we lost terribly. (laughs) This was a complete and utter disaster, but here's what we learned. And because I was data-driven, they knew it wasn't just my hope and ambition I could prove what I was thinking. I could learn from what I was doing and they could then see it. Mm. What I have found is that by writing it down, by concretizing it, not only can I show others what I'm doing, I can remind myself of what I intended. Because when you get caught up, when it, the plan doesn't work, what were the backup plans?
0: Many entrepreneurs we work with, we support. Usually they, it's a lonely journey. What is the advice for
1: someone who's visionary How do you build a team? So I always have a partner, uh, whether it's my campaign manager, my business partner. And that's important because even if I am the figure, even if I'm what people know, you want someone who's holding you accountable. But you also want someone who thinks differently than you do because they challenge you to think better. They sharpen your ideas. They come up with ideas you didn't come up with. And one of the dangers of entrepreneurship is that we think we have to be the architect of every original idea. We have to be the brilliant visionary. We alone, if, if we didn't come up with it, it, maybe they think we shouldn't have the job. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. So I have business partners in all things because I want someone else to be accountable with me. So that's my first person. Then you want your dot and that's like three or four people that you really trust. And, you know, they know that you'll kill them if they ever tell, no, sorry, not kill But (laughs) (laughs) there will be deep disapproval if they (laughs) betray your trust. And then around them, you want a ring. And that ring is really your support system. Those are people who share your vision. They understand your values. They don't have the same skin in the game, but they have the same instinct for success. And those are the folks that you, always want to be the most careful of, because your partner will forgive you, your dot will support you, but that circle is the, the weakest part and therefore needs the most attention. And often in entrepreneurship, we are so focused on either the person funding us or the person that we're competing against, we forget the people we need to lift us up. And that that is the place where I think the most work has to go into. And then from that, you create these multiple rings. So then eventually you're the planet of Saturn and you've got all these rings surrounding you. But each of those rings, you're you're intentional about designing it so that every ring is supporting the next one. But it is lonely because ultimately, if your business failed, they only remember whose name was at the CEO. And so there is a loneliness that's embedded in being the one. And so your goal is to make certain that when you fall... There are enough people near you that they, if they don't catch you, they at least prop you up and will give you time to recover for the next challenge. Um, I have a question.
0: So I think having worked in the politics and policymaking and, and, and being an entrepreneur yourself, mm-hmm. I, I'd like to hear thoughts about um, why are entrepreneurs who often I think, feel that disconnect between their own experience of entrepreneurs and the policymakers or well politicians, who, the people who really sub- are supposed to create the environment for them to flourish,
1: some of those don't get it. Okay. Capitalism presumes that everyone has the same intention and the same desire for outcome. It is not true. It's like everyone speaks the same language, but we don't use the words the same way. And policymaking is the most perfect example that while they speak the language of business, that doesn't mean they understand it at all. Most of the politicians and the, the, civic le- or the civil society leaders, they don't necessarily, they don't know what they don't know. They know what they're told. And what they are told is that by the billionaire or the millionaire or the established business, they know what he's telling. They know that story. And so, one of the responsibilities and opportunities is pulling together entrepreneurs because you have to make, you have to amplify your voice. They're going to listen to the people who know to come and ask. Those who are being left out and left behind, they individually complain, but they never complain together. Or if they complain together, they complain to each other. If you could fix it, you would have. You've got to complain to the people who can change it. You guys don't have any power and you probably don't have any money, but you have attention. And especially younger people, you all understand how to build attention in ways that no generation has ever understood. You have both the technological capacity, but also a cultural understanding that transcends every generation. You don't want to threaten politicians to start. You want It's with anything you want. You start by trying to get them on your side. You only emphasize their failure after you've given them a chance to be successful. Think about how you react. When, when someone wants something from you, are you more likely to give it to them when they ask and are complimentary, or when they're yelling at you and telling you how terrible you are? And you're gonna listen to the person who keeps showing up. If I know you're gonna come one time, I can tell you, oh yes, I'll get to it, and you're, you're gonna leave and I won't see you again, I never have to do what you want. But if I know you're gonna be back every other Thursday, I'm going to dread that Thursday. I'm like, oh, God, let me, do, let me give them something so they'll stop coming, hopefully. <laughs> or at least they won't stay as long. That's how you build political power because politicians are not there for you. They are there for everyone, and they give primacy to the ones who demand their attention. And then you can eventually run for office and fix it yourself. Yeah,
0: and uh, in your journey, you have had to venture into different things. Oh, yes. <laughs> Was there a time when you were like, okay, this is not... What we have ordered, or like you run for two campaigns and you started two businesses and you said, you rightly said you had a backup plan. But it was there a point where you're like, okay, in as much as I think we want to do this because it ends poverty and poverty is immoral, but we are not the right one to do it.
1: Always. So when I create an organization, when I, so let's use the, the Four Corners organization. So for democracy, for I believe in democracy not because it's this interesting construct, but because in civil in current civil society, it's how you get stuff. If you want things, democracy is how you get it, unless you live in an authoritarian regime, in which case you're If you live, if you live in a place that does not respect democracy, then there, you have to find other ways, but democracy, by and large, is the most effective means of accessing the services you need. And so my construct was what do I need to do in this sector to achieve democracy? So New Georgia Project, registered voters. That's the beginning. But then I needed the systems that they were voting in to be fair. So I created a fair fight. <laughs> but then the systems were designed, the, the, who you got to vote for was based on the census. If they didn't count you, when they drew the political lines, they could literally ignore your community and you would never have a chance to elect anyone who shared your values. So I created fair count. And then once you were voting, the question is what policies are being implemented? So I created SEEP, the Southern Economic Advancement Project. It's a policy organization. So those are the four things. I've been asked to also create uh, a political campaign school. No, I, I started a project called the Blue Institute and then I gave it to someone else to run because it was, while incredibly important, it was not the most, it wasn't the highest and best use of my time and someone else could do it better. And so part of what I tried to do is once I know the things I need to do, I think about what's missing. And then I go and find someone who's, who's already doing it. And I try to offer them my help or encouragement. And if no one's doing it, I find somebody and say, you should probably go do this and let me tell you who can help you get it done. But you should never be afraid to say, that's not my lane. Even if you are a four lane highway, the fifth lane may be the one that gets you into the accident. So it's okay not to, and it's okay to be in that lane and realize that's not the thing for me and to come back.
0: I mean, all of it seems like it's like product,
1: process, people, policy. Well, I, I, I will close by saying this. So, that, first of all, that's very kind to thank you all for having me. I got asked once Am I optimistic or pessimistic about the world? I'm neither, I am determined. Optimism means you're buoyed by success, but it also tends to mean that you're deflated when things go wrong. Pessimism means you don't think anything's going to go right anyway, so why bother trying? I focus on being determined. When you're determined, the only only thing you can do is keep working. Uh, My my much more crass way of putting it, you've heard the phrase, is the glass half full or half empty? Okay. I I think it's half full. I just think it's probably poisoned. And my job is to find the antidote. <laughs> and so the urgency of that means I've got to keep working.
0: So before, before you go, if we can just share our appreciation and gratitude for you coming. You. Uh, another value of Homoco is bravery. And the, the saying that we have here is the brave rise together. And we are all, I know, a bit more brave today because of what you have done for this world, and thank you, thank you so, so much. much. At Inhomoko, we're dedicated to empowering entrepreneurs across Africa with the tools, resources, and knowledge they need to flourish in today's competitive business landscape. Now we're bringing that passion to this podcast, taking you on a journey through inspiring stories from around the globe.